Turn, if you would, to the Psalms 2. Last week, we started the book of Psalms. We made it through Psalm 1. As I commented, we're not going to do all of them. We're going to randomly select them, and then we're going to move on to something else. But there are too many good things to talk about in the book of Psalm. Last week in Psalm 1, we talked, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We contrasted the blessed man and the wicked. The blessed man is like a tree planted by the water that bears its fruit in season. The wicked is like chaff, and chaff has no value. Chaff is the stuff that is in with the wheat that you toss the wheat up in the air and the chaff blows away because it has no value. That's what the wicked are. So moving on to Psalm 2 today. This is a fabulous psalm. Uh, my temptation is just to read it and say, so there, and walk off. But I don't think you'd let me do that. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We are told in the book of Acts that David wrote this psalm, even though it doesn't say at the heading, from David. David wrote this psalm, and it's a psalm of the king. Now, we can look at this in two different ways. At the beginning of it, we can almost make the case that he's talking about David the king or Solomon the king and the power and influence because it was very obvious, particularly to David, that when David became king, he was anointed by God. When he was anointed by God, the nations around him tried to overthrow him. David continually fought against those who would overthrow his throne. I might add, both outside of his family and inside of his family. So we could use this to talk about David as king, David as God's anointed. But it is also obvious that this psalm is talking about a lot more. This psalm is talking about the king which is Jesus Christ. This is a messianic 
prophecy, a psalm that explains, that talks to us about the coming true king. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Why do the nations rage? The nations are upset. Why are they upset? They're upset at God and his people. Why? Why would they be that way? I mean, we see it in the scripture. You know, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's coming to bring peace to all the world. Great things are going to happen. Yet the nations rage against it. We see this throughout history. We see it in the Old Testament, where nation after nation attacked the nation of Israel, sometimes successfully, because God used the nations of the world to chastise and to discipline his people. But why throughout history have nations attacked the Jews? Hmm. Once we leave Old Testament history and New Testament history, we begin to see throughout the history since then that God's people have been attacked repeatedly, both the Jewish community and the Christian community. Why? Why would the Soviet Union spend so much time trying to eliminate any understanding of Christianity. And by the way, as we'll get to in just a moment, it failed miserably. Why are nations fighting against God and his ways of doing things if, in fact, he promised Christ would be the Prince of Peace? Yet sin, being rampant in this world, develops pride within us that makes us as individuals and us as nations want to turn against God and his authority. We want nothing to do with it. Who are you, God, to tell me what to do? And I am going to fight against it. I mean, it's like, well, let's back up, back to the Roman Empire. The Romans were attacking the Christians. Why? Did they care that the Christians worshipped some carpenter from Nazareth? No, not at all. What they didn't like was that the Christians believed that was the only God. And as long as you were willing to worship Caesar and fill in the blank with whatever suited you, they were perfectly okay. But they did not want a source of authority that was outside their control. Nations have raged against God and his people. They have tried to overthrow the rule of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Let's lay aside for just a second the vain part of it. They are raging against God, and they are plotting against God. How can we get rid of this idea of God and his influence in our world today? The French Revolution came and said, we do not need God. We will 
take Notre Dame and turn it into a temple to reason itself. We will redo the calendar. Forget this whole seven days, six days, so shall you labor, and on the seventh. We will redo the calendar, and guess what? The people who were guillotining the people ended up being guillotined. Why do the nations rage, and why do people plot against God? Why do they do that? Because they cannot stand the idea of an authority higher than them. We don't do this today, do we? We wouldn't dare think of rebelling against God. And we're not necessarily here talking about individuals. We're talking about nations. We're talking about people groups. We're talking about large groups of people saying no to God. And what does it say? They plot against God in vain. What does the word vain mean in this case? Worthless. It isn't going to work. What do you mean it's going, not going to work? We see Christians getting killed all the time. We see Jews getting killed all the time. What does it mean that it's not going to work? It means that at the end of the story, God is going to win. There is no question about that, and that is the point of this psalm. If you don't get anything out of it except that, God wins. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot against, why do the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're poor losers. <laughs> Let's jump ahead from David to Christ for just a moment. You looked at the religious leaders continually plotting against. They were taking counsel against. They were trying to meet in their group and talk about how to get rid of the Lord's anointed. Individuals have done this. Nations have done this. Why? That is the question that I've spent the week trying to figure out. If you know but you don't. If you know you're going to lose, why fight the battle? Because they don't know they're going to lose. They think they can overthrow God and his word in the world today. We're getting to my favorite part of this in just a moment. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We are enslaved. Now, if you want to try to figure out some historical reference to this, there were neighbors that David had overthrown. Why? Because they were trying to overthrow him. 
And it is quite possible, because we see it when we get around to Solomon, that Solomon was recruiting, I use that term loosely, was recruiting the neighbors to come work, and they didn't like it. Let's break those bonds. But if we look at it from a messianic prophecy perspective, we see that the nations and the individuals of the world want to free themselves of the bondage of being obedient to God. And let's talk about that for a while. I have this nasty habit. It's not nasty, but it is a habit. Of whenever I finish a series and I start a new series, everything ties back to the previous series. I don't know. It's just that's what's in my head. Do you remember in Galatians chapter 5 where it begins, For freedom I have set you free. And we've had this long discussion at the time about the fact that when we get to that bad list in chapter 5, the works of the flesh that we're not supposed to do, those things are the things that enslave us. It isn't that we are free to do those things. In Christ, we are free to not do those things. But what if you really want to do those things? When someone tells you no, you're going to argue you are infringing on my freedom and in freedom I have to break these bonds to allow me to do that which is bad for me as a human being. And that's what the nations are saying to God. God, you say I should worship no other God before you. Well, that's really narrow of you. I think I need to break that bond. I need to break that bond and go do my own thing. I need to eat that fruit and I will be like God, making my own rules. But God knows that doesn't work. And it's not that it doesn't work because he swats you when you try, it doesn't work because it's bad for you as a human being. Yet the nations, the world says, I want to break those bonds. I am enslaved by a God who wants to tell me how I ought to live my life. And I, if I am Caesar, if I am Hitler, if I am Stalin... If I am Nebuchadnezzar, I do not want anyone telling me how to live my life. And if I'm Tom, Dick, or Harry, I also don't want somebody telling me how to live my life. I come to you and I offer you freedom, freedom to do whatever you want to do, and it is the fruit that Satan is offering to Eve in the garden. I want to break these bonds. This is the teenager. 
rebelling against his parents, not realizing that everything that he eats, everything that he drinks, everything that protects him from the world is a gift from his parents. But somehow, I want, no, I demand the freedom to do my own thing. And I am going to fight God tooth and nail. I am going to go get my neighbors. I'm going to go get my government. I'm going to go get the government of the nation next to me. And we are going to plot against God. Because I will not be subject to an all-loving God. Why would I do that? Here it comes. Here's the answer. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What is derision? Mocking humor, just belittling them. Now, we talked last week for just a moment that the Psalms are songs. They are poems. As such, they use certain language that is imagery. This is anthropomorphic imagery. I do not believe that God is really up there laughing. But you know what? He might as well be laughing. It's like this. I bring in, I don't know, 10 one-year-olds. Okay? And they decide to attack me. Now, I'm not the strongest guy in the world, and I'm not the toughest guy in the world, but I can probably hold off. In fact, the biggest problem is that I would fall down laughing. <laughs> laughing. Because the thought that those ten one-year-olds could actually, with their bare hands, inflict pain on me, is just hilarious. Now, I could probably find the right one-year-olds, but we're not going there. <laughs> but you see, the distance between God and humanity greatly exceeds that between me and a one-year-old. The one-year-old is at least a human being like I am a human being. The one-year-old is mobile like I'm. They're at least somewhat similar. The distance between God and humanity is pretty big. Shall we say infinite? So you have an infinite God, infinite in power. The God who could sit there and tell the ocean to stop, and it stopped. 
the God who could open the waters so the Egyptian army would go through and it would just crush them all, the God who would lead Gideon to wipe out an army, the God who can win battles with his word. And ten one-year-olds attacking. And he is going to fall down laughing. Why do the nations rage? Oh, the nations are raging. Oh, all bad things are going to happen. And God sits on his throne and says, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. I bet he doesn't use that word. I don't even let my kids use that word, at least when they were little. But there's a problem. It's not a problem for God. It's a problem for us. Because you see why God, while God can laugh at the mere thought that the nations of this world can successfully overthrow him and his will, we, at the same time, are living in this world. And what do we see? We see the nations raging. We begin to think God's in trouble. We begin to think he's lost control. We begin to think, maybe God's not going to be able to pull this thing out. Maybe God is going to fail this time. And God just sits there and chuckles. God is going to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. But it may not be what I want him to accomplish. It may not be the answer that I want. It may not be the solution that makes my life easier in the here and now. That's not his problem. God is going to accomplish his goals. Now, in the Bible we clearly see throughout the Old Testament with the prophets, we see why God did certain things. Unfortunately, I'm not a prophet. I can't tell you why this nation or that nation rises or falls. I cannot tell you why this nation rages and seems to get away from it, away with it. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. I can't tell you that. But God has shown us in the scripture how he works with nations so that we will have the faith to say he will, he does, he continues to do so today even though I, with my eyes, may not see it. Why does this nation rise and this nation fall? Because God wanted it. But why? He's not going to explain it to you. Well, maybe he will, but probably not. Why do the nations rage? Why do people plot against God? 
And remember, God just sits there and laughs. He holds them in derision. He's sitting there going, really? You want to do what? The first grader. One first grader. No, let's make it a two-year-old. They can almost talk. The two-year-old comes up to you and says, I'm going to beat you up. What are you going to do? You're going to laugh. And if it's not one of your grandkids, you're probably going to mock them a little bit. Are you really? Really? You're going to do what? That is holding them with derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion is Jerusalem. So back to our discussion about David and his anointing and his becoming king. God is saying to the nations around, I have set David right here, and he is my chosen guy. Don't mess with him. Now, David has his problems, and he suffers consequences for his problems. But as long as David is doing what God has called him to do, David is not going to be beat. Why? Because he is the Lord's anointed. Yes, Mike. I have no idea. His question is, is this an analogy to us sharing the gospel with someone and for a long period of time and having no effect? And I would love to be able to say this is telling us that eventually that person is going to be converted. But I can't say that, okay? What... This is telling us is that when we share the gospel over a long period of time and that person is mocking the gospel, thinking that somehow they are going to win this thing called life by turning their back on God, they need to know that eventually God is going to be proven true. And that is not pleasant for them or for those who love them. But that is what this is telling us. As I said, part of me just wanted to read this psalm and say, so there. Because we want it to be different. We want to know that God wins, but we want to know that everybody ends up singing Kumbaya at the end. And in a moment, we're going to see he's going to take his iron rod and he's going to smash the enemy like a clay pot. Well, that's a bad picture. Yeah, it is. It is a poetic representation of God's power compared to the nations of this world. I don't know why my kids do this, but my kids continually ask me, so if 
the U.S. fought against China, who would win? If the U.S. fought against this, who would win? If this country fought against that, I go, I don't know. You know, I believe we have the best military in the world, but we don't want to get into a fight in China. I mean, that's just a given, right? But you see, if you expand that question and say, okay, China fights against God, who wins? America fights against God, who wins? Thanos, we like the Avengers at my house, the Avengers fight against God, who wins? God wins. There is no fight. You can sit there and plot all day long until the day you die. And guess what? God is going to win. Then he will speak to them his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So we could talk about David, but we also know that Jesus is the son as well as the king sitting on the throne of David through which all the nations of the world will be blessed. We are talking about God sending Jesus Christ to the earth and the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leadership say, we're going to deal with this problem and they think they've won. And three days later, they didn't win. And they're never going to win. I will tell you the two of the decree. The Lord said to me, this is back to our messianic prophecy, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, we do not have four hours left in this class. And that's what it would take to adequately address the theology in this verse. You are my son. We can figure that out, remember? Uh, let's see, the baptism. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and a voice from heaven says, This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. God acknowledges that Jesus is his son. Jesus, the son of Mary, yes. The son of Joseph by adoption. But Jesus is the son of God. But what does it mean that he is begotten? You see, this word, you can read it in the creeds of the church because it has caused lots of confusion. Because it seems to carry with it the implication that there was a time when Jesus wasn't. And we don't believe that. I don't believe that. There has always been God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that there was God the Father, and then at some point on Christmas morning, you know, right, it wasn't really December 25th, but on Christmas morning, God the Son came into existence. No, that is not what happened. We are told in the first chapter of the book of John that it was the Word who was Jesus Christ who spoke the world into existence. We are told in Genesis chapter 1, let us, plural, make, God in, make man in our image. 
The Trinity existed. What does it mean when it says he is begotten? And there's lots of speculation about that. I will tell you what I think it means, which is that when Christ was on the earth, he submitted to the authority of the Father. I can only do that which my Father tells me to do. As such, when we say that Jesus is begotten, we are recognizing that he has put himself under, as a son would be under a father, it is a position of authority, not a position of creation at a particular point in time. He is accepting his position under the Father. But it does not mean that he did not exist at some point in the past. And by the way, what does time even mean before Genesis 1.1? That's a whole different discussion. As I said, we don't have four hours to go into all of that. And I told someone this morning, when you start walking into the discussions of the Trinity, you're entering a minefield. Just be careful. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. Here it comes. And you, you, the prince of priests, you, the person coming to bring salvation to all people, you, love, joy, all of those things, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a pottery's vessel. Now, imagine if you will. I thought about doing this, but it'd be horribly messy. You go get a clay pot. It can be whatever size you want. You can go down to Home Depot. You can go wherever you want, and you get a clay pot, and you put it right here. And then you take your aluminum baseball bat or a steel rod, and you walk up to it like a pinata, except you're not blindfolded, and you whack that clay pot. Question. Clay pot. Iron rod, who's going to win? Clay pots don't survive attacks from iron rods. I'm sure I've told you in here before, I heard a singer one time, and in a, one of his songs he said, it matters not whether the pitcher hits the stone or the stone hits the pitcher. It's bound to be bad for the pitcher. What is he telling them? Jesus Christ, the Son, the Prince of Peace, the person who makes the gospel available to all of us, the person who brings hope of salvation to all nations of the world, that person, if you fight against him, it's going to smash you like a clay pot. That doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound very peaceful. That doesn't sound very tolerant. What did we say? God is going to.
to win. Yes. Uh-huh. Her observation is that for those who are interested in justice, it is comforting. Because what happens when these people rage against God? What happens when these nations rage against God? Do they do good things? No. They do really bad things. And when those really bad things are happening, God, who is just, is telling us there's going to be a judgment. The good news, God wins. The bad news is if you're not on his side, you're going to be crushed. But we don't like that. In the same way, no, I won't even go there. Why, why do the nations rage? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now, to me, that's, I mean, remember, this is poetry. That's a fabulously interesting phrase. Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice. Serve with fear. We've had lots of discussion over the years in this class about the whole idea of the fear of the Lord. The idea that it is a holy awe that actually does prevent us from fighting to, against God. I mean, here you are. You're engaged in a war. Let's say you are. I mean, a real war. People shooting and all that stuff. And you know, you're not guessing, you know you're going to lose. What do you do? Well, our pride oftentimes leads us to keep fighting. I've read a lot of military history in my life. I read that for my fun reading. And it's always fascinated me that there's a point in a war where you've got to know you're going to lose. Why do you keep fighting? Habit. Pride. The expectation that just something's got to happen. Or, or, Turn to the person you're fighting against and you say you win. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. What does it mean to kiss the son? This is not a romantic description in any form or fashion. This is the kiss that demonstrates that you are subservient. You have lost. And I am submitting to your authority. It can be a kiss on the hand to the sovereign, a kiss on the ring. I don't know what you're kissing. 
but it is a recognition that you are submitting to the authority of the one who won. I've told you many times, when my kids were little, we would wrestle. And I had this thing. I don't know why I made this up. Maybe I read this verse. I would hold them and pen them. I mean, let's face it, I do outweigh them a bit. But if they kissed me, I would let them go. And you know what? There were times when I held them in a bear hug, and all they had to do is kiss me, and they wouldn't do it. <laughs> Why wouldn't they do it? Pride. Pride. And if we see that in a child playing with his loving father, how much more so the nations are raging against God, and God says, all you have to do is kiss the son, submit to his authority, and you will be on the winning side. But they don't do it. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Throughout David's life, he continually took refuge in God. What does that mean? He's being chased by someone and he runs to God. Why? Because God had given promises to him and he believed God. Why do the nations rage? That's the question. That's the question for all of human history. If we had a hundred hours to talk about all of human history, that would be the story. Why do the nations rage against God when all they have to do is submit to the Son and they will receive freedom? They will receive Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. They will receive eternal life. But we as individuals and we as the nations continue to think that we can outfight God. And God just sits there and laughs. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise that God wins. I pray, Lord, that each of us would submit to the authority of the Son, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.